The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. A very, very serious show tonight. And I'd like to start off by dedicating this show to Andrew Miller. He was in the Canadian Forces. He was a medic. He was in Afghanistan. The call came in. There was a wounded child. He didn't hesitate. He ran to the child's aid. While he was doing that, an IED went off and took his life. He was 22 years old. Tonight, folks, we're going to go to Benghazi with somebody who was boots on the ground there. His name is Chris Paranto. He was part of the security team that was in the CIA annex. Just let me read this about Chris. Chris Paranto, Tanto is his nickname, as he is affectionately known in security contracting circles, is a former Army Ranger from 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and private security contractor who has deployed throughout South America, Central America, the Middle East, and North Africa, of course. He also worked with the U.S. government's global response staff, conducting profile security in high-threat environments around the world. Mr. Paranto was part of the CIA Annex security team that responded to the terrorist attacks on the U.S. special mission in Benghazi, Libya. September 11th, 2012, helping to save over 20 lives. Let me say that again. Helping to save over 20 lives that certainly would have been lost that night while fighting off terrorists from the CIA annex for over 13 hours. Mr. Paranto's story is told in the book 13 Hours and very soon a movie, I'm told, written by Mitchell Zukov and his five surviving Annex security team members. I don't want to waste too much time because we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right to Chris right away. Chris, first of all, God bless you and thank you for your service. If it wasn't for guys like you, we wouldn't be having a conversation like this right now. And I want to get that very clear and across to the students that are listening right now. You know, I'm sitting here drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's raining. Big deal. These aren't bombs going off right behind me. And the only reason why we can live in Canada and the United States is because of guys like Chris. And when I say all the time, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of your choice, please do that tonight and settle in and listen to the true heroic story of Chris. Remember, 
remember the people that were on the ground that didn't come home so we can have a show like this. Chris, thank you so much for your service. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And then uh, I, I, I don't deserve that kind of reduction. Oh, I, yes, I you do. My friend. You know, it, it's, I, you know I, I, there's guys out there that are still doing what I used to do, and, and I think they deserve it more than I do. But thank you. Thank you very much, and it's it's an honor to be able to talk to you and and your followers. So um, I'm just hoping I can spread a little light and answer some questions uh, that people may have. And and you said it better than I could have. You recognize those that have given themselves and sacrificed all, especially my my two teammates, Ty Ty Woods and and uh, Glenn Bub Doherty, that that did die that night, giving themselves and protecting the annex and the personnel at it. And it's all about saving your brothers. Let's go into, can you take us into combat right away? It's September 11th, 2012, sure. 9.32 p.m. Yeah. The yeah. telephone rings. You, you know, it, it's there's a ring and, and it goes to our team leader who contacts us and says that we need to muster in the team room. Uh, the global response staff team room, we were at the CI Annex at the time. And as soon as you walk out the door, and, and this hadn't been my first altercation of enemy fire. And right when you walk out the door, you can uh, see the firefight. You can hear it. We're not that far from the temporary mission facility or the U.S. consulate is what it was called at that time. We're less than three quarters of a mile as a propolis. And, and you can see that it's under attack. You can hear that it's under attack. And we did what we were trained to do. We, we went and got our gear. We went and got all of our optical devices. We got our weapon systems. We got our vehicles staged. And we were ready to head out the gate and assist. And we were told to wait. By our, by our leadership, and it's difficult to do uh, when you're ready to get out there and you're ready to save Americans or Canadians' lives, um, UK, all of the Allied forces, you know, you, you, the British consulate as well, we had, we had actually responded to an attack by, on the British ambassador months earlier as well. That's right. And, and um, you know, it's difficult to sit back and, and watch your brethren or listen to them need your help and possibly dying across the radio nets and, and you're being told to basically not go. And that happened for about 25 minutes. We, we just waited and waited and waited. Chris, something that's always puzzled me, and you can clarify this for me and our listeners as well, why was the CIA annex approximately a mile and a half drive from the from the compound? Was that a tactical thing? Was that a strategic you know, strategic it's, it's set up that way sometimes. Yeah. It, it just depends. It, it's Without getting into operational security, it's just right. uh, it, it it it. I don't want to say tactical because I only say it's tactical. It's just it's based off of really it's based off the size of the area, the area that we're using, utilizing, and the size of the compound. If it can even house the ne the number of people that it needs to, so it can come right down to just basic size. I, I just don't think at the time Benghazi logistically was set up correctly. I, I'm not saying there was an op operational security or a tactical element for it. It was just it just didn't have the the, uh, the necessary buildings to house the us and them, so we could utilize and work out of it. Um, but it, you know, other than that, I really can't get into it because if I get into it any farther, then then I delve into operational security. But I think really that was what it was for Benghazi. It was just more of a size issue than anything else. So the call comes in, you get loaded, you get your gear on. Uh, what kind of weapons are you going to be using? Well, we have machine guns, and again, without getting into nomenclature, but oh, okay. any, any okay. but any sort of weapon systems that a special operations unit that a, even the which I worked with the Canadian Special Operations Forces in Kandahar, 
Uh, actually, we live together on, uh, on the base out there. We have the same sort of weapon systems. Anything that, a, that the special forces would use, Canadian or U.S., we have the same, same sort of rifles, same small arms. And, um, and, uh, now we don't carry, we use what anybody could ind individually carry. We don't carry any sort of weapon systems that would be the crew to, crew to, uh, utilize it. So it's small arms. It's, it's nothing bigger than, than a, a, uh, an American AR-15, you know, a, a civilian AR-15. And when I say that, most people will know pretty much what we carry. Um, we have to go low profile. So we don't carry large armaments because if the guns come out on our end, Something has gone horribly wrong. We're the we're the last things that we want to do is get into a firefight because we are so small, and we are doing a lot of low profile or even surveillance type missions where we just don't want to be detected. So, um, I wish we would have had bigger armaments. That's why we were, we did request air support or support from units within the area. Uh, in fact, I requested it at 9:37. I requested it again at midnight and 2:30 because we needed the extra armaments. Which, what were you told? For those that the book didn't get, we were told we, we were well. We were told throughout the night that they were working on it. Once we got back, you know, once we got back to the states and did our debrief with the FBI, with the agency, and so forth, that's and then via the media we found out that it wasn't available. But during that whole night, we were told that they were working on it. They were going to get it for us, and we knew that some of the assets were available because we utilized them before during prior missions there in Libya. So. um that's kind of where some of the cover-up started to come about as far as the, our, our own government saying the assets we were at requesting weren't available at the time. And come to find out later, yes, some of them were. And, uh, you know, that night we were also told that they were available, but they were work, they were getting, they were, uh, I'm sorry, our leadership was trying to find out where they were and to get them for us. They were working on it for us. So uh, it's just another clear, another cloudiness of what happened that night based off political agendas and and also then just based off the facts of what was going on that night. Can you, you just mention political agendas? Can sure. you speculate on, on what your beliefs are? What was behind? Well, I mean, I could speculate all day, all day, but I don't know if it'll be right. No, I, you know what? I, I know that we were told to stand down. At, 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 I mean, the word stand down came out of our chief of base's mouth at right around 947 that night when we were trying to leave to, to help our guys, to help the, the guys at the State Department. Um, the support, all I know is the State Department had to control the operation and the U.S. State Department didn't get us what we needed. Um, Department of Defense, from what I understand, and this is just open source for me, and also reading Mr. Panetta's book, Leon Panetta's book, I don't have any love for Mr. Panetta, but from what I understand, he did have Department of Defense assets moving towards us and um, from what I understand that State Department actually took control of the operation and, and turned those assets away I cannot tell you why and I can't tell you who within that chain of command it would be and that's why I I know in America we've got the right and the left that want to point fingers at Hillary or want to point fingers at, at Speaker Boehner I, I'm not going to do that because I don't know all I know is what 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 government entities were in position to assist in what certain government entities didn't do what they needed to do. And State Department was one that, that really not only failed us that night, but failed the State Department guys on the ground six months prior as they were, were requesting more men, more firepower, and were letting their own as leadership know that they were that they were in an insecure 
very dangerous facility where they needed more support and it fell on deaf ears. And uh, that's sad. It's real sad. Let's go back to you're in the car as you're waiting or whatever yeah. vehicles you're in. Yeah. And was there two, three cars? Was there a little bit of a car? Okay. Yeah, there was two. There was two. And, and uh, with, uh, I can't do the book justice. The, the book is well written by Mitchell and us. The, the us guys on the ground wrote it as well. Um, we waited for approximately 25 minutes. We were told to wait twice and to stand down once. And finally, we just disobeyed orders and left. And this was, you know, I, I want people to understand that during this whole time, we were sharing radio traffic radio communication with Scott Wickland, Dave Ubin, and Al Anderson, the three guys that are the State Department security officers at the consulate. And throughout that time, they are saying to us, guys, we need you here. We need you guys to get here. If you don't get here. Finally, it was either Scott or Alec. I couldn't tell but because of the duress and the voices. But they said, if you guys don't get here, we're going to die. And that's when we just, we left. And um, it's, it's, it was, it's, it gets your blood flowing. I'll tell you what, it certainly does. But it also, it's disheartening when you think about it later that we, you have to wait that long by our leadership to give us the okay before we head out. And you know what? I'll be honest. I, I, I think that's what cost, and I don't think, I know that's what cost the ambassador speeding to Sean Smith's life was that delay. Because that delay cost us another 20 minutes because we could only drive half of the way there. Then we had to actually dismount and fire away on foot because, uh, Ansar Sharia had had the areas blocked with machine gun fire. We couldn't drive all the way there, and um, they died of smoke inhalation. I would say probably 15 minutes before we even were able to get on the compound. And I take that I take full responsibility for that. People ask me whose fault do you think it was? Well, the terrorists for one, but I do think it's our fault they died because we didn't disobey orders quicker, and uh, we knew better. But uh, you're a trained uh, military yeah. person, a chain of command, right? You assume that the yeah, command yeah. has your best interests and their best interests at heart. And, and you do assume that, and uh, you assume that as you're as you're starting off as a private, moving up. But you know, all of us are forty. We're in our forties at the time. Um, there comes a time when you do need to say, you know what? They may not have the best interest in what we're doing. I think they may be holding us back, and we did finally. But it, it, it was just too, you know, 10, 15 minutes too late. Um, the CIA uh, commander at the time, you call him Bob in the book. And by yes. the way, folks, the book is called 13 Hours, The Inside Account of What Really Happened in Benghazi. And I urge you all to get it. It is fabulous. Uh, you won't put it down, and then you'll get the real story. Was Bob in over his head? On the military side, yes. Um and I, that's, that's what we all believe. Um, all of us, and this gets lost with contracting. All of us as contractors, we all had many, many years of military and contracting experience. I mean, I had 18. Ty Woods was a former dev group guy, SEAL Team 6 and 20 years experience. Uh, Jack Silva had been in teams for eight years. You know, uh, DB Benton had been the Marine Force Recon for almost 10 years and then he was a contractor with me for another eight there's a lot of experience there where our cia staffers had none our our, GR, our global response staff team leader the guy that's in charge of us had zero military experience he was a former secret service agent and i'm not dinging them for that as far as their job goes but when it turns into a military job that's when your leadership if you're a good leader you've got to turn it over to whoever your experts are and let them take over, and that didn't happen. And that says a lot about 
that says a lot about the U.S. government and how we are in our state of mind with our pride nowadays. It's very hard for our leaders to say, you know what, I don't know. Let this guy handle it. He knows more than I do. And I think that was epitomized that evening more than anything because it, it, if, if the leadership would have just said, you know what, you guys know what you're doing. I have complete faith in you. Move forward and do good things. Would some of us may have died? Maybe more of us may have died? Yes possibly, but that is what we get paid to do. That's what we're trained to do with more people been saved or could we have saved the ambassador? Yes, I do believe that as well. So um, utilize us and our skill sets for what we're trained for. Do, are we, do we want to die? No. Do we expect to die? No. But that is what we put us on the field is to sacrifice our lives, which we're willing to do to save other people's lives. And, and you know, the ambassador, that's a pretty, especially Ambassador Stevens, Losing him, that's a pretty big loss right there where, and I'm not downplaying myself, but losing me, I'll be, there's another shooter that can be, that can take my, <laughs> take my place down the road. You know, the, the wheels, and I know people don't want to say it, but that's the, I think there's a mindset of that within the special operations community is, is we are willing to give ourselves up to protect other people and to make sure more people come home. And, um, that just goes to the mindset of combat too, where I think it, that's why a lot of us guys can go towards the fire if we need to, instead of run away from it. Um, I suspect are, a lot of people have the wrong idea about contractors too. Now, folks, most of these contractors are ex-military. Yeah. Um, just because they're getting a private paycheck doesn't make the person that's being shot beside them any less a brother. Yeah. And this is something that has to come out as well. Uh, they're not just there just to collect the paycheck, they're there to protect their brothers as all military people are. And this is something that, that I think um, should be recognized, that they put their lives on their line just as if they were in the military, uh, because essentially they were. Can you tell us, now you said you had to get out halfway. That yeah. must have been disheartening too, because you knew time was a factor. Oh, and we, we've already lost so much time. We'd already lost approximately a half hour. And in a firefight, that's a lifetime. We didn't think we'd be finding anybody alive. And um, a crackle came across the radio when we got out of the vehicles, and it was from Scott at Wickland and saying, hey, they're lighting the buildings on fire. Now, the buildings have already been on fire. We could see the glow. What I think he was saying is, and what he didn't know is, um, he was seeing them light the villa on fire. He was with the ambassador in the safe room. And as soon as we got out of our vehicles, you can hear the cracks of the rounds. When, when, a, when a round is close, it breaks the sound barrier, and it, so it gives a crack, a distinct, like a whip crack. And I'll be honest with you, that motivates the heck out of us. <laughs> it's just my look. And uh, I remember going to DB, and DB and I had worked in Iraq and Afghanistan together. We went through training together. We'd been together for eight years, and I just looked at him and said, hey, we need to go on foot. We didn't even say, he said, roger that. We started grabbing our gear. We I grabbed the machine gun and my rifle and I had all my gear on. I grabbed my nods, they were already on. My night optical devices, night vision. And we just started jumping walls. Why Tig, why John Tig, Tigan was covering us with a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. And we actually, it took us a little time because DB and I were sneaking through backyards and jumping over concrete walls. Why Tig, Ty and Jack were actually laying suppressive fire down. And, and it ended up taking us about 20 minutes to actually finally connect in the middle of the compound. We had to link up in the middle, my team with, with John's team. And, and every time that. you jump a wall, you don't know what's on the other side either, yeah, so you have to do it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's, you've got to do it pretty stealthily. Yeah. And it, 
it's the ultimate game of hide and go seek. Whenever you do something like that, it's it reminds me of when I was playing hide and go seek as a kid, and you don't want to get caught. And, and just in that sort of incident, if you do get caught, you know, you, it could be your life. But it again, it, you don't think of it like that. At least I don't. It just it becomes that this is my job, and and the adrenaline's going, and and I'm loving every minute of it. I, I am. I really. In my element, I think that a lot of the other guys will tell you the same thing. They they enjoy the heck out of it. But we finally did link up on the concert. We managed to push Ansaucerea and whatever other elements with Al Qaeda and the Maghreb that were there off, at least at least initially. And we did manage to find Sean Smith's body and 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 uh, get the other State Department guys out of their safe areas and round them up. And we ended up staying on the concert or the what what we like what is now called the temporary mission facility for about an hour and a half till we were actually counterattacked. Well, we, we couldn't find the ambassador. Um, we tried and tried and tried to, going in and as far as we could into the building. The building was burning, it was on fire, a lot of diesel smoke. Um, we almost lost tie in the smoke back there because you get very disoriented and you start getting uh, overcome. And um, yeah, we just we, we couldn't find him. And that was, that was tough because we did end up fighting off the counterattack. Um, shot one of their RPG gunners that was trying to come across uh, a gate to get us. And that gave us enough of a, a break or a little bit of a lull that we were able to, to mount everybody up and, and get out of there right around midnight to get back to our annex. So, uh, what kind of numbers were you facing? Uh, <coughs> Take your time, my friend. No worries if you want to get a glass of water. Or... No, I'm, I'm good. I'm, thank you, Bill. Um, at any moment, it was between 20 and 30 at that time wow. um, when we pushed them off. Um, you know, it, it, uh, I don't think they expected us to fight back when they did counterattack us and tried to overtake the compound again. Um, and so when we knocked a few of them down, that I, I think it put them back on their heels a little bit because they took the conflict over with such ease. Um, it wasn't, they weren't even challenged that, um, I, I think it caught them a little bit and it gave us that at least 10 minutes that we could make a decision to say, are we going to stay here and keep trying to find the ambassador, even though we almost lost one of our guys in the smoke and we, we don't even know if he's here? Because we didn't know. We, we thought maybe he'd been kidnapped or pulled out already. Or we're going to leave, and leave our annex basically lightly defended because Oz and a couple of our base security guys were the only ones left at the annex. State Department, all the rest of the State Department guys we'd put in a car and they had gone back to the annex, so they were gone already. Um, and uh, we made a decision to get back to our annex. It, it hurts because the ambassador was found about an hour later by one of our neighborhood kids that that was friendly to us, uh, that was friendly to us in the neighborhood. And he was he was actually found in the back of the safe room and pulled out. Uh, and he was dead of smoke inhalation. So it, it's sad because, and I know that the Canadian Special Operations guys and, and all the military guys have their own credos, but you know it's a credo that you never leave a fallen comrade to fall in the hands of the enemy. And and uh, it bothers me because we did. Because we, we, we didn't find him. Even though we didn't know he was there, we left and we didn't, they weren't able to get his body in there. It's hard to stomach. I still think it was the right decision. Because if we wouldn't have got back, the annex would have got attacked without us there and we probably would have had more dead. But it still, it still heart hurts because you, you didn't honor that credo that was, you know, it's been ingrained in you since you started basic training or since I started basic training. You know? There was also a quick reaction force in place precisely to help you out in a situation like this, and yet they were told to stand down as well. Is that not correct? 
There, uh, there. What's going? There's a fast company, a marine fast company. That's it's Siganella. Um, this is only the only reason I know this is because I know a couple of the guys on the fast company that, and they they were they told me uh, that they were dressed up and ready to go on the tarmac, ready to come out, and then they were told to that they weren't needed and to go de-jock or take off their gear. Um, none of them can tell me why though, and I don't know why. I don't know who gave that order. Um, the only thing I can surmise is just from like speaking, listening to Mr. Panetta speak and then reading his book that it wasn't the Department of Defense, it was the State Department that took over the rescue operation around midnight. Um, I also know the FEST, there's a FEST company, F-E-S-T, and uh, people in Canada may not know what this is. This is a, and a lot of people in the U.S. don't know what it is. It's the, it's the quick reaction force team for the State Department. They're part of the State Department. Um, and they were not even told to, to get ready and come out. And it, would they have been there in enough time to save Ambassador Stevens and Sean Stick? No. Would they have been there? Could we utilize them to help save and help save and lock down our facility to save Ty and, Ty and Glenn? Well, sure. That's, that's a no-brainer. And the fast company, the same thing. Um, so it gets back to that question again is who told them to First, the Fest company that they weren't needed, and they are a State Department asset, so it has to come from the State Department. And then the Fast company, who, why did were they actually told to de-jock after they were told to get up and get ready to come help us? Which is what the Fast company is there for. That's what the Fast Marines are there, and they're they're in Signal. That's a couple hours away, and that's just two of the assets that could have been. I mean, there's a there's two Marine Expeditionary units in the Mediterranean on on the, on on the battleships. They're right in that area too. It, it just, there's so many assets that are in the area. And, uh, as well as the air power as well. And the air, yeah, you've got the Aviano Air Base and Suda Bay, which have F-15s and S-16s. Suda Bay is a maybe 30 minute flight on uh, with their afterburners on. You have a uh, Spectre gunship at Siganella. And then you also have one in Djibouti, Africa. Um, you know, sometimes just a flyover by an, by uh, an F-15 or an F-18 boy, that, is enough yeah, to, that, you know, that's enough to, to You know, and, that, and really at that point in time, too, the, the militias were definitely afraid of the fast movers of the air power because they had seen what it did when it assisted them overthrowing Gaddafi just recently. Mm -hmm. So they knew what that air power was capable of. And um, I, I tell people, people have asked me, well, what a big deal with an F-15 or F-16 flyover. I would, I just advise them or recommend that they go stand somewhere, let it fly over you about 100, 200 feet and see what it does. And it's the, it's awesome. It's a fantastic feeling, but boy, it'll, it'll scare the living bejesus out of you. And it, it, it would have very well because of the, the, the militias already having the experience of seeing what the air power could do. I um, want to touch on something. I want to deviate for a second from the yes. narrative. I just want to ask you, imagine yourself sitting in front of, Leon Panetta, just the two of you, I don't know, in a bar having a beer or something. Sure. And I'm going to ask you this about Hillary as well. What would you ask them? Well, I, I, I would ask Leon Panetta, and actually I would ask him, first of all, if he turned over the rescue operation to the State Department. And if he did, why? Why did you give it to the State Department? Why did you not keep the assets that you had moving moving towards us? That would be my one question for him, is... From what I understand, he had the assets moving and doing, he was doing the right thing. And then he just gave it up and said, State Department, you take this over. I would like to know why. What's the reason for that? 
Hillary Clinton or anybody within the State Department, I would ask, why did you not send assets? What was the reason for you not saying, for you, first of all, saying the assets weren't available? Second of all, when I knew they were, second of all, why didn't they come? And then third of all, why did nobody come to even pick us up when it was all over at 10.30 the next morning? We had to rent aircraft, we had to rent Libyan aircraft to fly out of there. So it just, my question to both of them there at the end too would be, and this is a personal thing because I don't have an answer for it. I've been asked this before, is did you want us to die that night? Did you want us to die so we would go away? Because from what happened to us that night and with us not receiving any support or even being picked up the following day and then the narrative being completely wrong after we got back before you knew that we even existed and then the so-called calling us liars by co certain congressmen. Well, well you we can mention their names if you want. Oh, yeah. Well, the congressmen are Adam Schiff and Adam Smith. Yeah. One's a congressman in Washington. The other one's a congressman in Southern California. They're calling us liars. Um, why? To make a profit off your book and all this you crap. Got, you yeah. got to. Yeah, you, you know, they got to put that out there. It's not so much anymore because of finding out that slowly but surely because of the committee and more things coming out that we are the ones telling the truth. They're finding that out the hard way. I would want to know, did you want us to die? And if not, prove it to me that you did not want us to die that night because I have no proof of it. And I, I cannot go on a, a show which I've been asked before on a radio show, if I believe the U.S. government wanted me to die that night. I could not go and say 100% no. I can't say that. I, 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 and that bothers me because you giving yourself up to the government, being I believe I am a patriot, of course. and then waiting there on the tarmac and, and going, holy crap, I, I, don't think, I don't think we're getting out of here. We're going to have to drive to Egypt or swim to Italy through the Mediterranean. Um and not being able to say my my government didn't leave me behind to die, it, it very much hurts. And I, I would want to know. I want to know from them. And I would hope they'd give me the truthful answer. I doubt it, but at least ask. Benghazi, folks, is approximately a thousand kilometers, 600 <clears throat> miles from Tripoli. In Tripoli, there's a larger compound, a larger embassy, and a fellow by the name of Gregory Hicks was there. He was a deputy ambassador. Were you... Chris, were you aware of what he was trying to do on his hand? He yes, seemed, he seemed I, to have I, his hands tied too. Yeah, I, I was aware after the after the fact. Okay. I didn't know that night. I, um, but after the fact, yes, um, him and Eric Nordstrom, the regional security officer there, um, I was actually friends with Eric Nordstrom because I worked in Tripoli before I worked in Benghazi, and he would he would come over and we'd have dinner every Fridays with the State Department security guys there uh, in Tripoli. And he would—he was disgusted. He—he he was trying and trying, and his hands were tied, as you well said. For, he was trying to get them more security and more assets because he knew that they were completely undermanned and they could not protect the facility. And I even remember six months prior him being so upset about not getting what he needed. And Mr. Hicks that night, yes, I, I do remember him trying to get assets available, trying to get the special forces team that he had there at the Tripoli uh, consulate to us and him being turned away and being turned down. And, and, uh, and, uh, and now, you know, now he's, he's basically been silenced. Um, he's a good man. I, I think he's been treated very wrongly by the state department. Why he doesn't come out more and say more. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what threats they have under him. 
or over him, but I do think the world of him, and I, I really admire that at least he did come out and testify, and he said what he should have. Um, I just think it kind of fell on deaf ears. Which have you I been threatened? Um, have you been asked just, to be silent? Just, just do, do well. Uh, you know, we've been we've had to sign multiple non-disclosures, which was odd, um, since I usually sign one non-disclosure every four or five years. You know, signing a couple within a span of a couple weeks is a pretty odd thing. A span signing three in a span of you know two months is, is extremely odd. Um, but I did because I was still working. I still after Benghazi, I worked in Yemen. For, uh, deployed to Yemen after Benghazi. I went to I worked in Sanaa, and um, so I, I had to sign those non-disclosures, or I could I could keep working. Um, threatened, not physical threatening. Um, civil forfeitures being threatened, basically being threatened to, to for money. Civil forfeiture, so any royalties or any money made from the book, we'd pay to the government because of us being affiliated with the agency. Uh, we did the book the right way, though. We submitted it for review. We, we rewrote it and we followed the rules that they've set in front of us. So there's nothing deemed operationally classified in the book. So they don't have any repercussions to come after us that way. Um, the only repercussion they have is either IRS audits, which I'm sure I will be here pretty soon, but we have been threatened with civil forfeiture, which is basically coming after the, the royalties that we made from the book and those would pay back to the government. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, that, that's really all they have on us. I mean, they don't really have anything else they could come after us for without making us look like martyrs, first of all, or just a completely ludicrous case. And we do have a good lawyer by the name of Mark Zay that handles these sort of things, and, and he's done a good job steering us in the right direction. Even though I don't always want to listen to him, he, he does get us going in the right direction. So um, uh, physical threatening, though, Come on, I, I haven't been overseas to fight in a long time, so um, if I, I I'm itching for it, and we can we can get in a physical altercation and, and no kidding, and your brothers in arms would surround you. Within I seconds. I I'm sure they'd be they're looking for it too. I believe I, I get many that are asking, <laughs> so um I'm not too concerned about that, but uh, I do concern get concerned about what they could do to me because it could affect you know monetarily wise, and that affects my family. Which that that really young ones as well. Yeah. Yes. Thirteen hours. The inside account of what really happened in Benghazi. Chris Paranto. Uh, he was there, folks. Three firefights, and we're going to get to uh, some more of that. I just want to let you know that you can get his book as always at the www.nightfrightshow.com website. Just click on tonight's guest book cover, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can order it. Um, Chris, okay, so I had mentioned Greg Hicks. He's trying to get the special yeah. forces together. He gets them together, gets them to the airport. There's no airplane, but he commandeers an airplane finally. He gets the special forces to Tripoli. As I said before, folks, it's about 600 miles, 1,000 kilometers. They land in Benghazi, and they've got no way to get to the annex, from what I understand. How the heck did they get from the airport in the end to the annex? Well, this and it was Glenn Doherty, not Greg. This was Glenn, Glenn, okay. Glenn Doherty, Bub. Greg, Greg was the one that was. Greg was the the, uh, the deputy chief of mission there at the consulate. Right. He was trying to get the assets together. Glenn and the CIA team, the Juris team from Tripoli, they took it upon themselves when Greg couldn't get couldn't get the military to go. I think Greg reached out to our Juris team leader there and said, "Hey, we need you get." And the Juris team knew what was going on there, and they. 
just like these brothers, they're coming to us no matter what. And we did have um, two Delta Force operators that work with us at certain sites, and so they were there. So the Delta Force guys linked up with our GRS team from Tripoli, and they that's they rented a plane. They rented a they actually rented a plane at the airport, flew to us in Benghazi, got there at midnight, and you're exactly right. They were stuck there for three hours, and all they had was a ten mile stretch to go. We did have we had no friendly militias there. As much as the State Department likes to say that we had 17 February Mars Brigade as our friend, they were not. They were a terrorist organization. They have been tied to Ansar Sharia immediately after the attack. So when they got there, the the GRS element from Tripoli, which included Glenn Bub Doherty, who died that night, and the Delta operators, they had no no vehicles to move them to us, and they didn't know where they were going. None of them had worked in Benghazi before. So, um, what happened is, is, is our, we have very good interpreters that were on the ground that night and a very good uh, counterterrorism CEO, I can't give you his name because he's still working, that had some contacts and they started to call the militias and we just happened to find a militia that wanted to, I guess, hated Ansar al-Sharia more than it hated us and they were called the Libyan Shield and they were able to link up and get them to us but it wasn't, for, it wasn't until 3 o'clock, 3.30 that they actually started moving towards the annex from Benina, which is Benghazi Airfield. So they they got there around midnight, 1230, but because of piss-poor management as far as us depending on locals to provide security or having a local militia that was friendly to us, which we knew we didn't have, um, it cost them three hours, three and a half hours to actually get to on-site to us. And once they did, Glenn was the only one that decided to get up on the roof to to supplement our security at the annex. We had four different buildings and we all were on different buildings protecting in different areas of uh, various avenues of avenues of approach. Glenn got up on Villa C with Ty, Mark Osgeist and Dave Rubin. He was up there for 10 minutes and we got mortar, mortars, uh, mortars hit us. Um, 80, 81 hit us, 81 millimeters and uh, Glenn and Ty, and, and we got counterattacked on the back gate. We managed to fight off the counterattack best we could. And, and then the mortars hit directly and killed Ty and Bub and severely injured Mark, uh, Mark Geist and Dave Rubin. And um, luckily... Now, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Chris. <clears throat> no, no, go ahead. It looks like they had mapped out and gridded out um, yeah. <clears throat> the compound because for mortars to land in such close proximity to each other... That's not by accident. And no, this is not a, a bunch of ragtag um, people protesting a, a movie that's anti-Islamic either. Yeah. This is a serious, serious confrontation by organized Al-Qaeda people. It, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to have a, to go set a mortar tube down and shoot mortars and be that accurate. In fact, it's, it's impossible. You can't do it. As much as... A, David Petraeus and Mike Morell like to say that it could have been shot from the back of a pickup truck. If they're that good, they need to be over here training us because I've never seen that before. Um, we we call it having a target reference point. We do that as well. Where we will map out an area, get a grid coordinate, put a mortar tube down, and it will sit there. We'll cover it up, and then when we need it, we pull it out, and we shoot mortars from it. And the first mortar was about 10 meters off target. What that is is that base, there's what we call a base plate. And that first 10 meters, when it, that first mortar goes out, it actually resets that base plate in the right area. And that's why the X, X4 were right on target. 
So it was spot on from the get-go. That first mortar, 10 meters off, it reset the base plate where it needed to be on the mortar tube, and the next four were spot I mean, they were dead. They were dead center of that building, and I'm surprised. Now, now I said uh, Oz lost the use of his left arm. It was severely injured, basically severed. Uh, they did manage to save it and reattach it. Uh, Dave Ubin lost uh, his arm and leg were severed. They being doctors in Tripoli and then the doctors in Germany and the U.S. managed to save his arm and leg. Granted, they all don't they don't work the same, but um, yeah, Glenn and Ty died instantly, and um, it, it, again. It, it, Protests, anti-Islamic, uh, whatever you want, anti-Islamic videos that could have caused the that caused the mass gathering. It's not possible. This was a very well planned attack that could have been planned out even months prior with the way that the mortar tubes were set up. Why do you um, think state used that as an as an excuse? I remember seeing Susan Rice on television saying, "Oh, that's all it was was a, a demonstration that got out of, that got out of control." Uh, they know the facts, and yet they're using this as – is this just political correctness? Um, I, I think it was the easiest well, – you know, we had an election going on, and al-Qaeda was on the run. Um, so, And I think that was the easiest explanation and the quickest explanation that you could come up with. Granted, I think still the best explanation could have been, hey, we, we don't know. We're still trying to figure it out. And then, realize, and then finding out if guys like myself were on the ground that night. Um, but it also gets to – the arrogance of, of the U.S. sometimes, the arrogance of our people that are in charge, that they can say anything and we're going to believe it as long as it's as long as it's spoon fed to us on the media, as long as it's spoon fed to us on TV, that uh, the majority of Americans are going to buy it. And the problem is, is, is that's seen quite readily now um, in the U.S. with the real, <laughs> with, you know, real world TV shows and, and all sorts. So, um, um, I just think it was a, 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 a very arrogant move, not necessarily by by the administration, but by his his advisors that draft his talking points. Um, uh, by it, but um, also believe that it was they may have been under pressure to get something out quickly, and they were able to utilize that. Uh, that was the quickest and best answer at the time instead of stepping back and taking the time and doing their due diligence to figure out what was wrong. But um, that, that kind of goes with how, how uh, we've been in the U.S. for a lot of years. We're the, we're the, the, quick, you know, the quick serve, the McDonald's, the McDonald's of the world here, where we want stuff done quickly and, and uh, be damned if it's going to be accurate or not. In the Canadian forces, after every mission, they have something called lessons learned. Everybody has this. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> What are the lessons that are learned, and were you allowed to do due diligence afterwards? We we did an a we did an do lessons learned or an after action report um, is what we can, we call them in the U.S. military. It's the same thing, um, uh, and then lessons learned after we were able to give an after action report to our own leadership within the agency with our own global response staff leadership. I never talked to Dave Petraeus or. Mike Morell or John Brennan or anybody on those levels about what happened. There. Um, All those guys you just mentioned, why the hell didn't they reach out to you? I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess if I was sitting in front of them, I would ask them that same thing. I don't know. Doesn't make sense, does it? No, it, it doesn't unless unless they just didn't think that we had enough to give. And 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 Mike Morell already made up his his mind of what had happened that night through 
his analysts, which were watching what was going on through social media and through the internet, and he chose to, he chose to believe his analysts over us that night, and that was kind of disheartening. But again, it's it kind of goes in the goes in the in in how the agency kind of does things now is is or at least that night did things is that uh, rather going to believe what you see on social media and Facebook than you're going to believe the guys actually reporting on the ground. Um, but I I couldn't tell you. I don't know why. I wish they would have. I think it would have been the right thing to do just as a commander of, a, of an organization that you come to your, your, your soldiers or your rangers, SEALs, Marines, or your contractors and say, thanks guys, good job, and, and what happened? And that didn't happen. And as far as lessons learned after within the agency, no, I went to Sanaa, Yemen, and not much changed. Um, even though we gave, them, we gave them ideas and we gave them advice of how to improve, not much has changed. Um, I can't tell you on the training side of the agency because I haven't gone through a training course since uh, since the attack. Um, I know within the State Department, the only thing that changes is now if there's an embassy or some embassy or a consulate that may be under attack or as a threat of an attack, we just pull up we just pull up chalks and we leave. That's Sanaa is a perfect example of that where there was a threat on the U.S. Embassy in Sinan, we just left. I mean, we left our vehicles and weapons. The Marines left their weapons there, or left pieces of their weapons there. Um, and that's not the right answer either. You don't just, you know, you don't just leave shop because there's a threat. So, um, lessons learned. No, I'd have to say no, lessons have not been learned. Or at least if they were learned, they, they, they have not been corrected to, to make it a positive environment or make it a better or more safe environment for our embassies overseas now if there's a threat we just leave and, and that just that shows cowardice and it shows that the u.s is not as strong as it used to be um and that's yeah, again that's, that's disheartening it, it really is disheartening you know um you had mentioned before that uh the political correctness and whatever the media <laughs> wants to put out there is just spoon-fed to the American public, and it reminded me right away of the Warren Commission um, oh. on the Kennedy assassination. And <laughs> uh, yeah. It's the same thing, you know, here comes another magic bullet, because yeah. uh, we, we can't square the corners, so we have to make up this whole different scenario. So are you expecting another attack somewhere in the world with the same yeah. outcome? Well, I, I I think there'll be another attack. It's it's going to be there's there's too many terrorist organizations out there, and ISIS is extremely powerful now. Um, Al Qaeda is always going to be powerful because we don't we don't go in there and we don't finish the mission. We don't go in there and we don't take these people out. We need to. We go in there. We we do a little bit here. I I, I equate it to this. I made this an analogy. We go in, we go into somebody's house. We mess it up, and then we give them the keys and say, "Oh, it's yours. It's yours now. We're leaving." And, and that's how, so I, I, yes, I do think there'll be another attack where I could tell you where, no, but I, I think anybody, if you're going to put bets on it, they would say the same thing. Um, uh, will it be the same? No, you know, I don't think it will be the same because, again, if there's a threat like we had in Benghazi, just like Sanaa, we will just leave. We'll leave the area. We'll leave the country and we'll leave the locals to their own devices. And again, instead of strengthening our areas overseas, Making them more secure, which is that's what I think needs to be done. We just we, we we just won't have them there anymore, and that just gives the the terrorist organizations the 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 Ansar al Sharia's, the Al Qaeda's, the Maghreb, the Ansar al Sharia's, the Taliban, 
it creates that vacuum of power and lets them come over and, and occupy and take over those areas. And then, uh, so, um, I, gosh, you know what? I, I, I don't want to say this, but I, I, you know, I don't want to say it, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that, that yes, I do believe it's going to happen again. I just hope it's not going to be on a grander scale as, as we saw on 9-11, you know, uh, when the trade centers, trade centers were hit and, or in Benghazi again. Um, Domestically, how are we domestically? Um, actually, I'm coming to Canada. I'm, no, I'm. I, that's going to be a soundbite somewhere. <laughs> I'm moving. To, <laughs> well, you come I'm stay like, at my house, my friend. Yeah. Barbecue and beer every night. <laughs> or maybe just the beer. Bugger the barbecue. Yeah, well, I mean, we need to eat a little bit. <laughs> domestically. <clears throat> We do have, we still have very good people out on the streets as far as law enforcement. Um, but we're seeing more attacks domestically. Again, a, a perfect example of seeing an attack domestically, which was sort of antagonized by, by a speaker there in Texas that, that kind of antagonized that a bit by doing the, uh, she, uh, and I forget her name, but they were doing the, the picture who could make the funniest picture of Muhammad. Oh, yes. And, and then two of the, two, two, um, Islamists came across. Yeah. yeah, they, so, the antagonization was there, which that was wrong. I don't agree with that. You don't antagonize that, at least not that form, because you're putting people. But then again, I don't recommend that terrorists or Islamists come in and start to start shooting people up or trying to kill those people. And what happened is they ran into a cop that was a police officer that was a very good shooter with a pistol, and he took them both out. That's but that, that being said, the, the, there have been more attacks already. They've been in smaller scales. Um, so domestically, no, we are not as safe as we used to be. Our borders aren't as safe as they used to be. They're still very porous, and that's where they're coming through. Um, but we still do have very good law enforcement. We still have very good military. I don't think they're going to use – I don't believe in that Jade Helm stuff where they're going to use the forces to turn on their own civilians. I could never see special operations forces turn on civilians. I wouldn't. Um, but we still have good infrastructure as far as our law enforcement goes. And if the military was ever needed inside the U.S., um, I, I, I think that they would do a very good job. And you know as good as I do, everybody in the U.S., from Nebraska on down to Texas, we all have guns. And so we, we can all fend for ourselves pretty well. But um, I do see little attacks here and there. Yes, I do. I do continually see that. And, you know, get bigger in the bigger cities. And, uh, how did this affect your family, your wife in particular? I mean, she was watching the news. You weren't in touch with her. And this is something I want to get across to the students as well. It's not just the person on the ground, but it's the families too that are involved with this. You know, um, and and this is it's been going on. You know, we, we have this is really this has affected my family quite quite a lot. My my wife and I actually we're we're divorcing. Because of this, oh, and, and, so and it, sorry. Uh, it, it's it, but I, I, if we're talking to kids in college, I want them to understand that this sort of thing, even when you're not, even when you're home, it puts a lot of pressure on the family life because there are so many changes, and you don't necessarily change together. You don't because the stuff I'm going through overseas, she can't experience it. When I get home, we've grown, and we may be growing apart, and it happens. So uh, and this and with this going on right now, with with a lot of the Benghazi things still going on, with us still being thrown in in the political fray, with the movie coming out, even though that's a positive stressor, it's still a stressor. Um, 
it still is difficult to keep a relationship together. And I think a lot of guys, a lot of the CANSOF guys, a lot of the Canadian Special Operations Forces guys, a lot of the Canadian police, a lot of the a lot of the Royal Royal Mounted Police, they'll tell you the same thing. Going through crisis or situations or going through situations where there is a lot of stress involved, it's hard to keep a relationship together. And, and it, it did. Now, we still love each other to death. And, and, but it's, it's one thing where we just, we, we became, we become different and it, it's hard to, it's hard to keep that going. So, um, yeah, it, it's a, obviously it's affected me and it, and it will continue to affect me for the rest of my life because of, uh, you know, every night I'm going to remember something over the 10 years that I deployed, whether it's been Gaza or whether it was Iraq or was Afghanistan. And it's hard for your significant other to accept that when you just, when you be, when you're quiet, or when you just have a have an issue, and and you don't want to talk, or or you maybe want to talk too much, so it's hard to find that special someone that can deal with it, and and uh, a lot of us can't, and it's a sad way to live, but it's a way we chose too. It is a way we chose. But there should be some help for people that yes. suffer from PTSD, and do you yeah. think that there's an adequate enough of? Um, about awareness, there seems to be a lot of awareness right now, especially since American Sniper came out. But do you think the, the government is aware of how much is needed? I think it's enough. I, I think it depends on the v, the veterans, the VA system. It depends on the state that it's in. Really does. I know it's a federal system, but it really depends on on where that VA hospital is. I'm I'm in Nebraska, and the VA hospital here is outstanding, and the the counselors here do a great job. I've seen them. What I just recommend to guys is that don't be proud. I had I I probably had PTSD slash anxiety for two or three years before I finally said, or until my wife at the time said, "Hey, there's something wrong with you. You're scaring me. You need to go see somebody." And it took me that long for my alpha maleness to to stick a step back and say, "You're right. I need to." But when I did, they did a great job, and they made me realize that. That you know, I'm, I'm I'm a better person for what's happened to me. I'm, I'm not worse. Just you got to close that past chapter and move on. And I deployed for five more years with them, so I know I know they helped me. Um, but I've I've heard horror stories in other states. So I really I don't know if the VA system as a whole, the system, is does enough for veterans. But I do think depending on the state that you're in, the, the people within the system, just like the people that you have on the ground when you're fighting. They make it worthwhile, and and the people here in Nebraska that work at the VA hospital here in Nebraska, in, in Omaha, I think are doing an outstanding job. But but the system itself, there's still a lot of corruption going on within the system because it's a government system, and I don't think a lot of the money is still going where it needs to be. Um, and I I think we can do better. Um, but uh, in my case personally, I have been helped helped here at the Omaha VA, so um. I have nothing negative to say at this point, at least with the Omaha VA structure. Chris, you know, you've spent a whole lifetime in service, <coughs> complete lifetime in service. You've got two little ones. Would yeah. you like to see them in uniform at one point? Um, I wouldn't say no. I, I'd be proud. I'd be worried, but I'd be very proud. My son already wants to be a ranger. He said he wants to be a ranger. Um, he goes to a private Lutheran school, and he actually uh, – he actually snuck my book to school when he was nine and read it. And, and luckily, the, the the teachers, you know, it's a very there. It's a very pro-military type school, so they weren't too upset with it with the uh, 
with the language in it, you know, they, and they were very, because they, they honestly, they didn't know what I did either. They had no, I, I kept it hidden. They had no idea that that's what I did for a living. So, um, I, I was very happy that he, that he did that. And he read the whole thing before I even knew he had it. So, um, yes, I'd be very proud. Would I, but like any father, I'd worry. And, and with what I've been through, of course I would worry. Um, my daughter, no, she's, a, she's my princess. <laughs> she, no, she, she, I don't, I wouldn't want her in uniform. I think she could handle it. She's tough and, and her mom's tough too. But, um, oh man, I, I don't think, I think daughters and daddies, that's a little different. Sons, he's tough. Get, you know, he skins his knee, get up and get up and go run some more. My daughter skins her knee. And I'm picking her up and holding her till she stops crying. <laughs> so, um, I know that's a double standard. If I'm called a chauvinist for that, I'm sorry. I, that's just, I guess I'm old school, old school raised differently. But if she, for my daughter, if she wanted to, I would put all the faith in the world that she could do it and I would support her, but it would wrench my heart out a little bit more than if my son did it. Yeah. Chris, we're going to have to start to wrap up now, but thank you so much for coming on and telling the students that are listening right now and everybody that's listening right now, the true story of what happened in Benghazi. And, thank you. you know, I, I can't thank you enough for your service, and you saved lives that night. Thanks, sir. You I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And uh, those people went home to their families because of you, and that's something, that's a badge of honor that uh, no medal can equate. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for all the students listening out there. I, I, I really appreciate it. Good luck in all your futures. And you too, my friend. And um, don't be a stranger. You're welcome here anytime. You want to Thank come you. to Canada? I'll meet you at the border. Case twenty-four. You got it. You got it. We're on it. That'll work. Thanks, brother. Take care, my friend. Chris Peranto. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. www.nightfrightshow.com. See you all next time. Thank you. All. Thanks again, Chris. Bye now. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.